You're listening to In the Open, a Mental Health America podcast, a space where we explore mental health and navigate the challenges of life through honest and candid conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to In the Open. Today's topic is, is social media making me depressed? And we're here again with just the two of us um, from last week's session with Keegan Lee. Hi, everyone. <laughs> so Keegan, I don't, you shared about just briefly that you are part of our youth council. You're a student, right? Yes. In college. Yes. I think that might be helpful because when we think about the way that social media makes you depressed, I'm going to mm-hmm. chat about your experiences with that, but mm-hmm. at least on our website and what we see from young people, depression runs in people's families. Sometimes it can be triggered by life experiences like becoming addicted and falling into the rabbit hole of social media. Mm-hmm. But I oftentimes on our podcast, we have adults coming on to be guests. Mm-hmm. And I just really enjoyed our conversation last week and love that you're bringing as close to youth as we can get. Me too. But I'm so honored that older people are seeing the value in in youth voices and youth leadership because it's really we really need help from their perspective to kind of help spearhead and and amplify our voices yeah so is social media making me depressed (laughs) (laughs) let's just get right into that (laughs) that is how we do (laughs) yeah Yeah. it it sounds like such a simple question, but it's also kind of complex in its own way. And I think it's important to distinguish the difference between regular, typical sadness from social media and consistent depression from social media, because there is a difference. When, you know, I, we, we just talked about, I'm going off to college for the first time. And this is a very, a very valid transition for several people my age. And I know that I will probably go through a little bit of homesickness. I will probably go through just challenges regarding time management and overstimulation a little bit. And I could feel down, but that does not mean that I am depressed because I am, these are typical human emotions that are okay and normal. And so when we're talking about social media, it's important to understand that social media, if social media is making you upset, that does not mean that you have clinical depression. But if you ignore those signs, it could lead to something more severe. Yeah. Are you sure you're not 40? <laughs> I, I really hope I'm not. <laughs> you sound way too mature. I was not nearly as mature when I was your age. So I agree. It's hard to parse out those nuances, but I think I just, I shared with you last time that I've, I've lived with clinical depression mm-hmm. in my life and I have not experienced social media itself triggering a depressed episode Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can I'm curious now to reflect on it whether it exacerbated yes (laughs) 
my first question that I always start with is just when you hear this phrase, you know, is social media making me depressed? How, what's your reflection mm. on that, on your life? Like, did social yes. media make you depressed? It did. It, it had such a negative effect on my mental health. I never, fortunately, I've been blessed to have not been diagnosed with a clinical mental health condition, but that does not mean that I have spent hours in my room contemplating, you know, I I don't, I don't want to go out today. I don't want to do this. I don't want to, I'm not motivated. And I do attribute a lot of those feelings to social media because of how draining it was. And I think for me, a big trigger of my sadness um, during the time where I was addicted to it was because of fear of missing out and comparison. And one of the issues with social media is that it gives you so much information and it gives you so much stimuli. You know where everyone is at one time. You instantly know if you're not being invited to something and you are comparing yourself to the highlight reels of other people's life. And it's upsetting because it's a natural human thing to compare yourself. It's incredibly instinctual and it's completely subconscious. We don't even know that we're doing it, but we go back to social media because we feel like that that is where we will find our contentment again. And that's not true. And so for me, it was fear of missing out. That was that was a big one for me. It broke my heart to hear you talk about it because I think most adults can resonate with fear of missing out and feeling isolated or left out as a form of, it's not, it's weird because it's a gray area. It's not like I'm being bullied, but I'm just being like excluded, which is so sad. And so I so often think about social media as being missed out by people who I'm I'm not familiar with or maybe mm-hmm. in my outer circles but I can't even when you when we think about what happens for young people who are being bullied or friend groups where you're not even sure trust is gray like allegiances or loyalties or like am I your friend mm-hmm. or not really your friend how this is a weird area because they're not being actively attacked from somebody, but th- these are big feelings that I think are relatively common. Mm-hmm. Would that be your guess? Yes. That fear of missing out? Yes. it's It happens across all ages, at any age, at any time. Yeah. And even, I mean, if we're, if we're thinking about the digital divide between Generation Z and your generation, I believe. Generation, is it Generation X? I'm an elder millennial. Okay, elder millennial. <laughs> elder millennial, Gen Gen X, yeah. I love Cuss. that. I love that. <laughs> um, <laughs> if we're thinking about how, you've exper- how you experienced your childhood yeah. in, in a social way, it was you go out to play with everyone in your neighborhood, you come home when, when, the, when the lamppost light comes on you know, outside your house. That was when that was a signal that you need to be back inside. And, and now, and and back then it was the physical dangers, you know, look both ways when you're crossing the street, don't talk to strangers, you know, those sort of thing. And so parents have grown up around that sort of environment. And 
now, of course, it's important to translate that information onto onto the younger generations, but it's also important to give equal, if not more importance to the online dangers. And so from a parent's perspective, it's very important that parents are educated on on the online dangers because of this. But FOMO, fear of missing out, it is very, very common for all ages, all humans. Were you missing out with people that you went to school with along with looking at some comparison standard of beauty online and, and doing a comparison there? Or was the comparison much more weighted with the people you knew actively? Yes. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I would say a little bit of both. Of course, SnapMap, I don't know if you're familiar with SnapMap, but the little bit emojis, if people have their location on, you can go to the Snapchat, you can see where people are. And if people are together, they will be in a little group. So you'll be able to see that. And you will know if you're not invited to something. And then on, you know, Instagram, you would see people posting what they want you to see, which is only half of the story. Of course, I didn't know that at that point. I was just comparing myself to their highlight reels, but it was, um, it was a little bit of both and it was very unhealthy. How old were you when you started getting kind of sucked up into that, the the lure of that. Do you remember? I was young. I, I believe I was 14, 15. Okay. Um, so I was just beginning high school. I had yeah. social media when I was in middle school, which now knowing what I know, I would not have, um, I would not have chosen to, to have social media. But at the beginning of high school, I was, I started paying a lot more attention to it. Got it. And how old were you when you realized, hey, this is a problem? Right in the midst of the pandemic, right before I did my 60-day social media cleanse, I was 16. So, so yeah, two years. It took a quite, quite a bit of time for me to understand that this was a problem and that this was affecting my identity and who I was. And we talked last time about the way that your addiction to social media was affecting your behaviors, like being Mm -hmm. in a restaurant setting, not knowing how to talk to people. But we didn't dive into that really deep sense of identity, which I love that you said identity, because I think that's Mm -hmm. really the crux of safety and sadness. What did that progression look like, losing yourself or not understanding identity, what what did that look like as you wrestled with it between 14 to 16? I think we become so, I mean, you, you see toddlers with screens, with pacifiers, and parents are observing this and they are in these fantasy worlds. They are able to manipulate everything and they love it. And we love it. And I loved it because it was so predictable and it brought that sense of satisfaction that we know what's going to happen. We know we're going to get this, this dopamine hit. And that was, that was a good feeling because humans don't like not knowing or being somewhere where they don't really know what's going to happen. And so for me, I associated a lot of my identity with social media and 
always having to edit and manipulate and, and filter all of these different things. And that was my identity. I wasn't showing Mm. the real person that I was. I was showing a, an edited and, and not genuine and authentic Keegan. And that was, that was wrong. It took away from in-person conversation, in-person connection. And because I didn't know my identity, because I didn't know who I was, that of course translated into how I communicated with others and how I loved and valued and connected Yeah, because it was in-person conversation and people lean away from that because it happened in real time and you have to think and you have to give a response, a vulnerable response a lot of the time. Do you think that it also increased the risks of feeling shameful about who you really were as you were crafting this persona online and like becoming this persona online who was not who you were? Was there, yes. was there some of that? There was shame. There was shame because I was like, this is not the real me. I'm putting this persona online because it's what I want people to think of me. Mm-hmm. It's what I want people to see. The edited version of who I was. And that's not that's not human. That's not being an advocate for building a humane digital world. So that's interesting because in my brain, I was wondering if we felt you would feel the shame about when you would interact with people in your real Mm -hmm. self and then have to deal with feelings that would come up in real life when you have to interact with people and it feeling awkward. But you're also saying that as you engaged with your avatar self, your online self, that, (laughs) that you felt shame in just existing as who you were. Yes, yes. And and of course it also translated into my in-person communication because I would I would be talking with people and these people would know me through social media and I would be talking to them and I would be questioning in my mind like you know do they see me differently now because I'm not yes. edited? Do they are they thinking the same way of me? Are they perceiving me in a different way that's more negative because this is who I really am? I'm showing myself. I'm not wearing makeup. I'm not, uh, my hair isn't done, you know, that sort of thing. Even like the way that we can handle rejection as it's buffered through social media as opposed to the way (laughs) what we perceive as rejection happening in real life comes at you. But yes, I, yes. I am imagining that would really recalibrate. I already had weird intrusive thoughts of (laughs) self-hatred I think it would exacerbate that horribly yes that's horribly frightening I know it's so scary Teresa it's so scary and it's a gut-wrenching thing to talk about but it's important to talk about and that's the other thing with rejection you can see if someone leaves you unopened if someone leaves you unseen or they're not responding in the time that you want them to and that triggers a real physiological response that's equivalent to feeling physical pain. Yeah. If that keeps happening over and over again, you can think about the effects, the, the, the traumatic thoughts, intrusive thoughts that you were saying happens repetitively can lead to clinical depression. 
Yeah. And I'm sure ghosting and ignoring people or doing those things happens all the time. Yes. Sometimes intentional and sometimes not. But how does the person on that other end interpret Mm -hmm. feeling rejected Mm -hmm. on social media in that way over and over, as you say, right? Yes. And isn't that crazy? Ghosting has its own term. It, you know, it, it happens so much that it has its own term. <laughs> it's going to get worse. Like, like so much of online lives, it's transformative. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like we're at the beginning of this. And if we can't have life experiences like yours to tell us what to do, it's hard to know. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Like right now, it, it does feel like it's a hard place to be because – I have people I know who were only 10 years older than I who had not heard some APA guidelines that we shouldn't have our children under two exposed to any media technology before two years old. I know that they had parents who were letting, you know, children as young as one watching iPads and what that does to the brain. So Mm -hmm. I don't, I feel like even as a parent in my early 40s, really ill-equipped to figure out how to how to protect or help my children mm-hmm. who who might be feeling depressed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If you could give guidance to – let's start with kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you could say something to your younger self or to children who are younger about what they should be paying attention to, what would you say? I would say that there is so much beauty – in the real world that is completely unmatched to what you can experience through a screen. And we don't understand that completely because of how I said in the, in the last episode, technology casts spells on us and literally rewires our brain to think a certain way because of the algorithm. And we forget about the beauty of of connecting the art of, of empathic skills and, and looking someone in the eye and seeing their soul. We, we forget about that. And I would say that social media does have the ability to bring meaningful connection. It does. But what we are seeing is that those connections are ephemeral and short and they're not as long lasting and they don't bring the same benefit as connecting in person because that is the way we have evolutionarily evolved that is yeah. that is our most primal way of connecting and yeah. 10 million years ago when we were in the hunter gatherer age we were weak we were the most vulnerable species to exist but there was one mutation that happened in our larynx, which allowed us to develop language. And now we are able to connect, we're able to have conversation. And it's important to understand that the conversation that happens on social media cannot be replicated through in-person conversation. That sounds so much like the way my recovery brain mm-hmm. says to my old addicted brain, mm-hmm. like this this life after addiction is so beautiful. Like yeah. I'm really asking to invite you to this space. Mm-hmm. But would your younger self have found that argument compelling? That's the thing. I don't think so. 
And that's a really, <laughs> I don't think so. And I don't think, yeah. I, I think when a lot of the times when I'm observing, when I'm talking to people my own age about this, about the social media problem, it is difficult yeah. to allow them for them to be receptive to what I'm saying because they're so hypnotized and trapped by social media platforms and the algorithm and, and everything. And so if I'm talking, if I'm thinking of myself five years ago, I don't think I would have been receptive. I think I would have just been, Oh, it's fine. You know, I'm not addicted. This is awesome. Yes. It's not making me depressed. I'm fine. This is actually really great. Yeah. What's What's the voice that was your aha moment? What was the thing that helped it click for you? I think when at the end of my experiment, when I had developed this higher tolerance for boredom and I could just live and be and not be stimulated, not be compelled to grab my phone, that feeling of just living in the moment allowed me to understand that I don't need my phone to to make me happy. I don't need a notification to gratify my worth. I can just live and be and look out the window when I'm riding in my car and see that it's really wonderful. Okay, so then what does what made you decide to go on your cleanse then? You have um, to go backwards. Yeah. I I just found that I was spending way too much time on my phone. And and like I said in the previous episode, the pandemic gave me the self-awareness that I needed to understand that mm. my screen time was way too high. It was affecting my relationships. It was affecting how I perceived myself. Um, I wasn't being productive with my time. I was just in this constant habitual cycle of going back to my phone. And so I said, this has to stop. I have to put a change to this. And I realized if you want to make a change with something in your life, you have to put it at the top of your to-do list or it's not going to happen. And you did that at 16. Yes, I did. Super impressive. Thank you. Let's end with advice you're going to give to parents because mm-hmm. I think some of us have a sense of what an algorithm is, the way that it becomes all-consuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think that most adults don't don't really know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe you can explain for an adult who doesn't know enough about social media yes. what that looks like. Absolutely. No, I love talking about the algorithm because it really is the root of social media addiction. What's happening is these apps are designed to increase your engagement, increase your attention. And so what I tell people is if you are not buying anything, you are the product and they are buying your time, your energy, and your interaction within platforms. And so what, what really, what's really happening here is they understand your psychology. They understand your neurobiology, everything that's happening in your brain. And so dopamine is really the important hormone that is making you come back to your phone because what happens is you see your phone, you pick up your phone, you go on your phone and you get a dopamine hit and then you put your phone down And now you create this expectation in your mind that going back to social media is going to give you that 
that feeling of contentment again. And so then when you don't get that, when you don't get the amount of likes on a post that you want or comments or whatever, then it's like a little subtle jab. And it's like all of a sudden you're on this hunt to get it and find it again. And you will do anything that will make you achieve that. And that's the thing about dopamine. It is one of the most powerful human motivators to exist. It's like the social media is trained to learn us, mm-hmm. but it's training us. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that you talk about the the dopamine, mm-hmm. but you also talk about the stab. You called it a stab. Yes, yes. That's a, almost the way that we're reinforced through punishment. Yes, yes, it is. On an app, because as human creatures, I think we also seek pleasure and we avoid pain. Mm-hmm. And, and here in this situation, like many addictions, you have both, but- the social media issue is that we have so little understanding of the way this happens for our brains. Mm-hmm. We're so early in the research. We have no idea. Like compared yes. to understanding alcohol addiction or methamphetamine addiction. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It just feels like there's something different too about pushing buttons. Yeah. And and having my brain be trained by pushing a button mm-hmm. that – it's weird. Like my 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 adult brain is trying to wrap what it might feel like as a small child to get yeah. sucked up into that behavior and that pattern. Yes. And then the yeah. other part that I also worry about, I know as adults, like I feel guilty, not necessarily because I'm afraid my child will be left out, which mm-hmm. I do too. Right? right. Where it gets really weird is the the technological world is so advancing. Mm-hmm. I start to wonder that if I'm not letting my children engage with computers or technology, mm-hmm. that I'm actually setting them back. Right. Yeah. It's a concern as a parent. What would you say to a parent? <laughs> what would you just say to parents, period? So you've explained the way the, the, the algorithm is problematic. What what would you what advice do you have for parents? I would say parents, I mean, they're put in a very difficult position, but they are the primary determinant as to how a child uses technology because there is no law as to when a child receives a phone. There's a law for when you can vote, but there's no law. And therefore, parents really are the primary factor. And as a parent, it really is all about moderation and education. And the truth is social media isn't going away. Technology is going to continue to advance. What's important is that you reclaim conversation with your children. You set tech boundaries and you as a parent follow those adamantly because you are a role model and observational learning that happens at it with the child at a very young age, it continues for a very long time. And so you are their role model. They're watching you. And so set boundaries, make sure your children understand when it's okay to, to text and when it's okay, when it's needed to have a conversation about something. And that is really what the advice that I would give everything in moderation because technology we're going, the truth is we're going to need to learn to grow with technology, but we have to make sure we preserve our most instinctual human ways of connecting. Moderation and communication. Mm Got to talk to your kids about it, set boundaries, follow through with 
the boundaries and talk. Yes. Yeah. All, all, all of those are really protective factors, yes. I think, in so many things. Yes. If you – let's imagine you're adult, an adult and you're thinking of having kids. Mm-hmm. Or what At what age do you think a kid should have a smartphone? Oh, goodness. I think – it's different with if, if you were asking social media because I don't think I would allow them to have social media in middle school. I think middle school is hard enough. But phones, it's hard because once they get to middle school, they need to get in touch with you. They're doing sports, you know, that sort of thing. I would really love to hold back on, on a tangible cell phone until about eighth grade uh-huh. because – the sixth, the seventh grade, everything up until seventh grade is really, you're really finding yourself. You're finding what you love, what you hate, what makes you tick, you know, all of these things. And it's a very important phase of our life that is needed for self-reflection. And so I think I would hold off until about eighth grade. Okay. And then social media? Social media, I feel cruel for saying this, but probably like the end of sophomore year. Um, or even the beginning of junior year. Hey, you're welcome to your opinions. People don't have to follow them, but (laughs) I might be more inclined to listen to you (laughs) than I might someone else because you're closer to the issue. I mean, you, you're young enough to know what the outcast situation sounds like, but also how to weigh the costs and the benefits of the way utilizing a phone and utilizing social media has impacted your life. So you're not giving me numbers that feel extreme. You're saying some kind of phone was okay by eighth grade and think about social media as a junior, you know, Mm -hmm. it is a battle. I do think there are a lot of eight, you know, eight, nine, 10th graders (laughs) who scream at us. Yeah. Maybe that's the point, right? Like as a parent, so oftentimes we are the bad guy mm-hmm. to set limits. But if, if anything, you've given us context for thinking about how to have that conversation at those critical points mm-hmm. and like wh- where we're struggling to not be really comfortable with exposing children to social media, for example, as early as sixth grade, I think is probably wise. So... Keegan has shared with us about her life story and she has a book, The 60 Days of Disconnect. And do you want to tell our audience a little bit about it and where they can find it? Yes, absolutely. So I'm so happy that you asked. So the book is called 60 Days of Disconnect, and I wrote it with Dr. Bilal Gandor, who is a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at Elon University. And the book is about my experiences during a 60-day cleanse of social media that I did when I was 16 years old, when I found my own mental health start to decline due to my obsession with social media platforms. And so during this time, I journaled my everyday thoughts and feelings and emotions. And I collaborated with Dr. Gandor, and he, in the book, responds to my journal entries in a psychological way so that people can understand the why behind their individual or universal human behaviors. And so there's also a parent's guide in the back for parents. And then there's also some other important messages on technology addiction and its impact on the developing and emerging minds of Generation Z. And so the main message of the book is technology 
and social media are incredible. It's not anti-social media or technology. My role and my goal is to create a more humane and responsible digital world so that we can preserve our most meaningful forms of human connection. Awesome. And you can find it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. (laughs) Yay. So impressive. Thank you. And we'll just say goodbye and tell everybody in our audience to keep on fighting in the open. Keep on fighting in the open. (laughs) 